Max Verstappen easily defeats Lewis Hamilton in the Mexico City Grand Prix with a bold one-stop strategy gamble to confound the Mercedes pit wall. This is the F1 Strategy Report. My name's Michael Laminato and this is Round 20, the Mexico City Grand Prix. Powered by LeaveCal. Keep track of employee leave and make resource planning easy. Search LeaveCal in the Zero App Store. Mexico City's high altitude and the smoothness of the circuit made this Mercedes' most competitive weekend of the year, and the team was determined to score its first win of the season from second and third on the grid. Max Verstappen had taken pole, but was handicapped by using the soft tyre in his first stint, or so Mercedes thought. Both Lewis Hamilton and George Russell used the more flexible mediums at the start and targeted a medium-hard, one-stop strategy that the team expected to win them track position ahead of the two-stopping Verstappen. But Verstappen's tyres just kept going, and going, and going some more. The Dutchman mastered the mediums to stretch his second stint to the end of the race and confound Mercedes, winning the race by more than 15 seconds ahead of a forlorn Hamilton. But was there any way for Mercedes to win this race, or was Red Bull racing just too quick? To help answer that question, I'm joined by F1's preeminent stats man, Sean Kelly. Sean, welcome back to the Strategy Report. Thank you very much for having me back. Uh, unfortunately, the race maybe did not live up to the hype, but there was a great deal of excitement for this one, not only because it does just seem like F1 loves going to Mexico City, and for good reason, but also we had this sort of idea, particularly after the US, that maybe we were going to have a much closer battle on our hands. And I guess for a lot of the race, it almost seemed like that was still going to transpire. In the end, maybe it didn't live up to the hype we were expecting of the weekend. Yeah, unfortunately... Um, it, the potential was definitely there. And I think even in post-mortem, we can say, you know, mm, maybe it should have been a little bit closer. Maybe Mercedes were a little bit conservative, um, took the safer options. Um, Red Bull had their number on strategy, as they, as they have done with everybody this season. The Red Bull have been immaculate on strategy throughout the year. Um, and uh, again... As, as is proving to be the case with this track, very difficult to pass, even with that very, very long straight. Um, it, it just seems that it is a very track position hungry race. I think that's the second race, second year in a row where the top four, I think it would have been, uh, finished in the same order as they completed the first lap. So, um, yeah, it's uh, an ongoing problem, sadly. And uh, Mercedes were not able to conquer Red Bull on strategy. Almost weirdly, the same gaps on the podium as well, which was very... Eerie, I suppose. As eerie as a very random statistic like that can be, I suppose. Given, given that we've got a completely different technical formula. Yes. And, you know, Mercedes are a different, I mean, it really is a different beast to what it was in 2021. Mm. And yet here we are arriving at an almost identical podium with an ident- almost identical time gaps to within about one second either side. Mm. It is one of those uh, wacky things. Maybe we'll remember that for years to come. Who's to say? How much of this track, though, and you mentioned their track position is really important here. We have a long straight that doesn't seem to make the difference such a long straight would at other circuits how much is this race really defined by that altitude we hear the figure 2.2 kilometers above sea level it's quite high <laughs> it is the highest venue of them mm. all i mean the the second highest venue we've ever had in formula is kyle army and we've been there for nearly 30 years as a sport um it, it yeah i mean obviously there is the issue of you get much higher top speed because you've got less drag but then that also pays it back in you know, with with some cars, because draggier cars are penalised less, and that was reflected in the numbers that we saw from Mercedes relative to Austin. In Austin, Lewis Hamilton was eight kilometres an hour, five miles an hour slower than Verstappen down the straight. 
that had a crucial difference in the outcome of that race because, of course, when Verstappen got into DRS range, he had the DRS, which is around 20 kilometers an hour advantage, plus the eight kilometers an hour he already had. Now, when once Verstappen got ahead of Hamilton, Hamilton had this deficit in his DRS. He, he was losing eight kilometers an hour. So he was now, you know, the DRS is only worth 12 kilometers an hour to him, net, whereas it was worth 28 to Verstappen. So it was, it was almost impossible for him to get Verstappen back, even though he was, you know, equitable almost on pace. In Mexico City, that deficit had reduced down to only two kilometers an hour. So you can see there that, you know, obviously, you know, it's not exactly the same setup on both cars because it's a different racetrack. But obviously, Mercedes were not suffering with that deficit in quite the way they were uh, at lower altitude. Given that that is, we can't escape the fact that the air is thinner at altitude. There's nothing F1 in all of its power and might can do about that, short of building over the circuit and pressurizing it, which I'd love to see, but probably unlikely to happen. Does there need to be some kind of fundamental change? The circuit layout, perhaps, obviously not in the way we're used to trying to improve overtaking, which is by creating long straights. That's clearly not going to work here. Does it need to be rethought the way the Mexico City Grand Prix is run, given this is a pretty fundamental, unchangeable element of the race? Um, well, I, I, I always caution on major changes because, um, yes, it was a dull race. There's no denying that. But it, it, you know, it was close to being a very exciting race. If Hamilton mm. had had the same tyre strategy, which I'm sure we're going to get into, um, you know, the race would have been a, a closer run thing than it, in, in the end it was. And we obviously saw, and again, we will discuss this, I'm sure, how Daniel Ricciardo started carving through the field late in the Late in late innings, um, uh, so it, it, it's I caution against making draconian changes based on a couple of bad races. Uh, prior to twenty twenty one, the the Mexico trended around the seasonal average. If you look at a if you were to draw a curve, um, an x y curve of uh, average, oh, you know the, the seasonal average, Mexico was almost dead on that line year in year out, and it dropped last year. Uh, and I don't—I actually don't know what the numbers are. Actually, excuse me while I look them up real quick because I don't have them to hand. Um, let me have a look at the the passing numbers. We only had twenty on-track passes after lap one this year. We only had nineteen last year, so it's almost an almost statistically speaking an identical race. Um, but yet we have these completely different um, car formula, technical formula. Can we do anything about it? Well, I mean, we've had some real barnstormers in Mexico. You know, I can remember Alan Prost winning from thirteenth place in nineteen ninety. I'm old enough to remember that. Um, so the altitude in itself is not a problem. Um, and you can't say that, oh, they don't have a straight on which to overtake. They certainly have a straight mm. on which to overtake in Mexico. But for some reason, it's not happening. But I, again, I would caution and say, you know, don't do anything rash. You know, that, it might, there, might be a, there might be some simpler things that, that could perhaps be suggested that will fix the problem rather than saying, right, we're going to completely change the racetrack or do this or do that. Because they did that in 2015. You know, the track was redesigned, essentially, in every element for Formula 1. There's no... Almost 100% of the track, you know, the corners are all different. Like, whether they're, they're kind of in the same place, but the profile's slightly different of all of them. Um, so, yeah. Let's see. If we get another dull one next year, they might start to think, you know... They might start to think the way the organisers did in Australia, which is like, this is, a, this, is an in, this is an endemic problem of this racetrack. Let's see what we could do to maybe alter things. It will be interesting. It, it is a, a holistic approach F1 seems to be taking to the spectacle increasingly in the last few years, which includes the track approach, which I think is no bad thing. So, uh, But it is fair, as you say, you know, 
sometimes you just get a run of bad races at tracks that ordinarily produce great races. Sometimes it does happen. So we will wait and see on that one. And also, we remember like in 2016, remember that tremendous battle late on with Max Verstappen and mm. Sebastian Vettel, and they're all going off the track, and yeah. Sebastian Vettel swearing at, at, uh, <laughs> at Charlie Whiting on the radio. It was, it was, that was a brilliant sort of, you know, dust up so it is it is possible it is it is within the capability of mexico to produce some great racing it's just unfortunately we didn't get it yesterday yes now you mentioned already some of the reasons why mercedes was expecting to do better here and some of the reasons why they did do better here this is still an upturn in form compared to much of what they were used to for a lot of this year and we saw a little bit of that even in qualifying which is certainly not a, an area in which the mercedes has been strong this year it's tended to come back into the race on Sundays, on race pace, it looked for a little bit like pole position could have been up for grabs, which in itself is kind of interesting, because to zoom out, zoom out a little bit on, on pole here, it's almost a little bit, it's one of those tracks where it's almost statistically a little bit cursed, partly because of that run down to turn one, maybe some of it is just for other reasons. I remember Sochi used to sort of be a little bit similar, you never really wanted to start on pole because of the run down to the line, and historically, pole is not where you want to be here. No, not at all. I mean, it, would, it had been the case prior to this weekend that uh, the last four races we'd had at the track the pole sitter had not been on the podium in any of them not just not failed not just failed to win not been on the podium yeah. um and in three of those four races the driver on pole position failed to lead the first lap because of course as you mentioned right like sochi you know you drop the hammer off the line and basically you're pulling all this lot behind <laughs> you giving them the perfect slipstream the perfect run down to turn one which unfortunately because of the way cars are and so forth, you know, you would never get as good of a run off a car, you know, coming round the uh, the Peraltada or the Nigel Mansell Corner, whatever you want to call it. Uh, you would never get as good of a run as that again when you're that close up behind another car. Um, so we went into it thinking, so if happens on pole, perhaps he's actually disappointed. Yeah. <laughs> um, and normally Lewis Hamilton would say, ah, missed the front row. Still no front row this year for Lewis Hamilton, staggeringly. Um but this is if he's not going to be on the front row, this is the best third place he could have because, you know, you've got Verstappen, who we know is a slightly quicker car down the straight, pulling Hamilton along with him. What's not to love about this? And I, I had said, I mean, I do. Obviously, everybody knows me as a statistician. Increasingly, I also appear on the stage at, at, at Formula One races now. And, and what I do in hospitality now is give everybody sort of a pre-race brief. You know, you've enjoyed the, the food and the drink and taking the pictures and, you know, going down and doing paddock tours and all that stuff. Let's talk business. Let's talk <laughs> nuts and bolts, things I need you to keep an eye on. And one of the things I said was the tyre choice for the start is going to be absolutely crucial because a soft tyre will launch off the line better than the medium. And we had seen previously in Barcelona where Pirelli had told us absolutely the best strategies to start on the medium and then whatever it was after that, you know, hard tyres, whatever. No one started on the medium. They all started on the softs, which was a completely, what you might think it was like a, an act of self-harm. You think, how's this soft tyre going to last? But of course, the thing was, the soft tyre gave that crucial launch off the grid. And we've got that huge run, again, a long run down to turn one in Barcelona, track position, very important on that racetrack. They all took the soft tyre because they knew they all needed that launch off the grid. So I was surprised when I saw the tyre options for the start of this race. Okay, Verstappen's got the soft, so clearly Red Bull are saying, keep the lead. Don't let these guys get round you. And when, when I saw Mercedes on the medium, I thought, okay, so they're not betting the house on turn one here. They're going to bet that this race comes to them. Um, so when Verstappen kept the lead, I thought, okay, well, it's not the end of the world because he's on the compromised tyre 
in theory, compared to the Mercedes. Um, so it became early on, it became a much more nuanced race, a much more purist race where you're thinking, OK, this is a little bit more old school Max Mosley chess match style <laughs> F1, which, I, which I'm, not, I'm not opposed to. It doesn't all have to be overtaking maneuvers. It, all be, it can all be based on strategy and, you know, mm-hmm. a more cerebral type of race. Um, and uh, yeah, it, uh, it went from there. And early on, I mean, I, I've got, I actually got my lap, t- my lap time um, sheets in front of me. I, I log all of the lap times of the front runners as we're on the air. Um, you know, there were points in this race. Hamilton was absolutely matching uh, Max. At the, end of, at the end of lap two, the gap's 1.5. By the end of lap 14, the gap's 1.7. So, you know, Hamilton's absolutely there on pace, at least in the early stint. Uh, you know, there were some times where they were within one thousandth of a second on lap time. It was that close. No, no DRS. He was never in DRS range. So it wasn't with that assistance. Um, so, yeah, it was on the table for them. It was on the table for Mercedes in that first stint, um, contrary to what the final result would, would imply. I like that idea, just to go back to the way that they, they handled the start, that, that it wasn't necessarily all lost at the first corner and maybe wasn't necessarily even about the first corner. Uh, and Obviously, the race unfolded after that. But the fact that Mercedes had cars in positions two and three had potentially this opportunity to kind of pincer the leader and sort of preempted or, or, or foreshadowed the idea there might be some teamwork involved off the line. We hear that from teams occasionally when they're in some kind of similar configuration in the, in the top two rows. But I'm really struggling to think of a time in which teamwork in that situation has really, really paid off. And we kind of saw it again in this race where they kind of both tried to do something and then in the end, neither got him and Hamilton ended up ahead of Russell. I don't know if you can think of a time in which something like that has worked off in a premeditated way, but I couldn't really remember one. Not off the line, no. Um, it's because there's too much chaos theory. Yeah. I mean, because there's, no guar- there's no guarantee that either one of you is going to make the start that you're expecting to make. Um, and, and, you know, these guys are racing drivers. You know, ultimately, if they think, hey, wait a minute, I can get, I can get this guy, they're going to go for it. They're not going to say, oh, wait a minute, what about the strategy that we talked about for half an hour? Yeah. You know, you've got like two seconds maximum to make this decision. What am I going to do? Um, so usually you think, right, well, well, get past this guy and ask questions later, especially on a track where, as we've discussed, the track position is so vital. It's a case of, look, if you can get Verstappen, get him. Don't wait. Don't try and like box him in so Hamilton yeah. can get him. You know, you're wasting your time. And it didn't surprise me at all that off the line, everybody fell into that draft, you know, behind Verstappen. They all tucked in um, line, uh, well, line of stern, I guess would be the right term, um, but I, I was impressed. I mean, Verstappen got a great launch, even on those used tyres. And uh, I was even more impressed by his braking capability into Turn 1. I really thought that the Mercedes would give him a harder time into Turn 1. But Verstappen was last of the late breakers and, and was unopposed. It was, uh, it was easy pickings off that start line. But then, you know, as I mentioned, I thought, so Mercedes are going to sit back and wait for those tyres to go off. And then they're going to... Yeah, obviously Verstappen will pit first. And then he'll have an undercut. But Mercedes will have the payback later in this race because, you know, later in this race, they'll be able to run tyres for less of a distance, push harder, and the, and, the, and the race comes to them. But, alas, not the case. Um, because I think what, what was not really discussed, I mean, I, I've, I um, sort of did a little bit of a examination of this my, myself this morning. I refer you in particular to uh, Mark Hughes' article for Motorsport Magazine on, on their website, which is always... Uh, appointment reading on a Monday morning, uh, the full the full lowdown. Um, he points out that there was a drop in track temperature um, 
which which tallies. I mean, I it's one of those unfortunate incidents where me sitting indoors in air conditioning, <laughs> I did I, I genuinely didn't realise that the track conditions had had dropped, and I forgot to check the track temperature as we were going along. So I was blind to that while we were on the air. Uh, so full me a culpa on that one. I didn't realise, but. It, it, every day we've been in Mexico City, it, it had dropped off in temperature, you know, after 2 or 3 p.m. Um, in fact, a lot of the time, we got, a lot of the days we got rain. Uh, we didn't get rain on Sunday, or at least not during daylight hours. But that drop, in, that drop in track temperature meant the track came to the soft runners. And that really helped Verstappen. It wasn't quite, it, it, it was, it was a, obviously a very, very well thought out strategy by Red Bull, which appeared to much walk the line much better between being aggressive and being foolhardy. But they did get a little bit of assistance from the conditions. Now, it could be that Red Bull had factored that in. They thought, okay, there's going to be cloud cover. We're going to get a drop in track temperature. This tyre will work. And maybe Mercedes had not considered that, just as I had not considered it sitting <laughs> in my air conditions, my air-conditioned uh, ivory tower that I have at the racetrack. Um, uh, yeah, but uh, that, that, that did significantly alter... The, uh, the how the tyre wear unfolded throughout this race. So before we talk about Mercedes then, since we're speaking about Red Bull just now, let's have a quick look into exactly how they did pull off that race. Because you mentioned there, and I like that, that walking the line between, I guess, confidence and foolhardiness, because that is, it, it could have really, in some senses, gone either way. Certainly Mercedes expected to go one way. Red Bull felt somewhat confident at least it was going to go the other way. Do you think this that this team and they and they put both cars on the same strategy as well, at least to begin with? Who knows if they originally intended to get to the end and the same strategy with both of them? But how much of this do you think is born of the fact that there's not really anything on the line for them anymore? They can throw caution a little bit to the wind here, knowing both championships are wrapped up. It is a bit of an un, always a bit of an unusual race in that way. If it's d- decided between one stops and two, it's sort of like you never look like you made a hugely obvious mistake. Was this just a, that level of confidence from them? Do you think? Well, I'm sure there's probably a, a psychological confidence that comes from having made the right call so many times. Now, full disclosure to you. Um, I've done a number of presentations this year for Oracle, who, of course, are the title sponsor for Red Bull. Now, Oracle got involved with Red Bull again in 2021, uh, won the championship. Strange, I mean, the strange thing about Oracle is every time they've sponsored a Formula One car, it has won the world championship uh-huh. because they sponsored, they sponsored Benetton when Schumacher uh-huh. won his two titles. They came back in 2021. Max Verstappen wins the title. What a result. They, come back this, they, 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 increase, <laughs> they increase the relationship this year. Mm. And look what's happened with Red Bull compared to last year. They've absolutely dominated. <laughs> and the thing is, Christian Horner will say, or he, he's credited Oracle with their, their ability to simulate strategies. They've got, they, he's said on the record, we have 25% more um, potential to, to run strategies of various connotations and so forth. So we have a lot more nuanced detail about what we should do in these situations. And then it's, Obviously, it goes to the drivers and the engineers. You know, Hannah Schmitz is very well known on the pit walls, being the, the one of the main uh, strategical, most well-known faces in F1 race strategy. Um, so you could say that yes, it's born of not recklessness, but as you said, knowing that okay, if we if we lose this race, it's not going to make a difference in the championship. We've already got it. But they do have one thing on the line, and that is that they're trying to finish first and second in the championship. Now, Red Bull have never, ever done that. They've won the driver's championship. They've won the constructor's championship. They've never finished first and second in the title. So there is something at stake for them. But ultimately, what I think is, um, I don't think that they they just thought, you know, screw it. Let's just go for it. I don't think they went like that. Because 
there are plenty of examples this season of where they went with something that seemed a little bit out of kilter with what everybody else did. Um, quite apart from the way they baffled Ferrari with strategy in Monaco with the wet intermediate dry tyre stuff, which, which handed the race to Checo Perez. In Hungary, Hungary is a great example. Um, Pirelli had, before the race, insisted that this hard tyre was going to be the best tyre to be on late in the race. The Verstappen and Perez went out to the grid, and in their outlaps of the grid, both of them complained, these tyres, sorry, no, this is not going to work. They're just not right. We're going to be too slow on this tyre. We should run the medium tyre, not the hard tyre. So in that instance, that was an example of the engineers and the drivers overruling the data. I often complain that too much of Formula One, in fact, maybe even too much of sport these days, is done on a laptop. Like, you've got to remember, the race is on the track. It's not on a laptop. Laptop might tell you one thing. The drivers will tell you something out, something else. So therefore, if the driver is telling you, no, over here in observable reality, it should be, it's, it's obviously not the right call. So, so in that race uh, in Hungary, Red Bull changed their strategy, put the medium tyre on. You may recall Charles Leclerc and Ferrari stuck with the, the plan A, put the, the hard tyre on and just reversed through the field while Verstappen <laughs> won from 10th on the grid. So with that confidence, you know, it's easier if they go into that engineering briefing and say, you know what, I think what's going to happen is we're going to get a drop in track temperature. It's going to bring the race to the soft tyre, put the soft tyre on. We're going to get that launch. We're not going to be as vulnerable going down to turn one. And I think we can hold, we can hang a race around that tyre. And moreover, once we go into the pits, we can move to the medium tyre. We don't need that hard tyre. And we can run the rest of the race on that tyre. Pirelli, in their pre-race notes, had said that one of the strategies they had suggested is the medium tyre, the yellow medium tyre, could run up to 47 laps. Now, when Verstappen pitted, he had 46 laps left to go, and they put the medium tyre on. So therefore, you're thinking, look at that. They've run the soft. They've moved to the medium. They can get to the end. And if, if the tyres are going to go the way they think this is going, this is in the bag. And the way I think Mercedes may have thought in the back of their minds that Verstappen was going to two-stop. And if he had, of course, then we would have had a race. Because uh, when all said and done, I think what well, the gaps was like 15 seconds yeah. to Hamilton at the, at the flag. Mm-hmm. Now, consider, if you will, that it had been, if, if Verstappen had been two-stopping, the Delta's 22 seconds. So uh, Hamilton only finished 15 seconds behind. If Verstappen makes another stop, Okay, 22 seconds lost there. He's going to come back. He's going to come out seven seconds behind Lewis Hamilton and he'd have to make up that advance, that deficit on new tyres right at the end. We would have had a hell of a finish and Mercedes wouldn't have been wrong to think, you know, that, that could be what they're doing. We'll put the hard tyre on and the race will come to us because those, you know, those mediums will probably go off. Alas, once I said, as I said before, the track temperature dropped. So the medium was not so afflicted by where in perhaps the manner that Mercedes had expected. It's interesting as well to consider that while this wasn't a 1-2 for Red Bull, it was so very close to a 1-2. Had Sergio Perez not had that slow stop, quite possibly could have undercut Lewis Hamilton. Might have then been put in this interesting situation where, yes, given the overriding uh, priority at the moment is to have 1-2 in the championship, who knows? Maybe Red Bull would have even considered trying to get him into the lead. And my goodness, would the circuit have absolutely popped off? I... I had said many times in my uh, in my stand-ups on the stages over the weekend how Verstappen's title is in the bag, Red Bull's title is in the bag. There is only one piece of business left for Red Bull, and that's Perez finishing second and get get the one-two. 
And I, and I kept challenging the audience. I said, think, think of a hypothetical situation. Max Verstappen is winning this race. Checo Perez is second and Leclerc is in third. They've got to, they've got to swap them over. They've got to put Perez in the lead. And it's not, it's not a crime of passion. It's not just like, oh, let Checo Perez win his home race. No, there is genuinely a championship implication involved here. Now, as it, of course, as it was, and I did point this out on the stage, I said, first off, Perez needs to be close enough to Verstappen and ahead of everybody else for this to happen. Of course, it didn't happen. Um, but I said, can you imagine a scenario where Max is told to move over and Max does that? Can you see Max Verstappen doing it? Because um, he's never been tested in that way. You know, we, he, he might do it. It's just we've never seen it. Now, Lewis Hamilton in the past has done it when he's been told, can you move over for Valtteri to let him through and have a go? Or, or if Valtteri let him pass, I remember in Hungary one year, I forget which year it was, Valtteri moved over for him so that Hamilton could attack the car in front. They were stuck behind somebody. And Ham- Hamilton never got past that car. And so on the last lap, he dropped back and let Valtteri back through and gave him the position back, which I thought was remarkable um, uh, team camaraderie, if you will, and very, very honourable of him, even though it cost him points in the championship. Um, so we're yet to see Max tested in that way. And I did venture the theory that if that scenario comes up and Max does not move over, that's going to cause tension in the team because Checo could legitimately say, hang on a minute, I've helped you out in certain situations. Yes. Uh, you know, Abu Dhabi 2021, hello. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but where's my payback? Like, am I yeah. just forever the lackey? Um, so, you know, those, as it turned out, of course, Mercedes did the blocking for him because um, Mercedes were the second best team um, and it, Ferrari were just almost literally not at the races. And once again, of course, no race is complete without Ferrari fouling up completely. And once again, <laughs> Carlos Sainz finished ahead of Charles Leclerc, which cost Leclerc another two points in, the, in that race. Uh, so if Ferrari are wanting second in the World Championship, they're not showing a very good job of it. Yes, we'll get to Ferrari in just a second. I want to backtrack slightly to Mercedes now, the reverse side of the coin of, of the strategy implications we've talked about. This was their best win. We've said this a couple of times, mind you. Maybe we'll be saying it again next week. Who knows? Their best shot at victory so far this season, at least. Uh, and they were even talking before the race, the idea that you know they're going to throw absolutely everything at this because the conditions were just right for this car, a smooth track, the altitude doesn't penalise the drag, all that kind of stuff. Uh, we've talked about the idea they might be doing teammate stuff, all that kind of stuff. And even the idea that maybe if the race called for it, one driver's race might be, you know, hamstrung a little bit if the other driver could therefore have a better shot at victory. And yet we got the same strategy on both cars. It turned out to be quite a conservative strategy, even if there was reasons to think it might be a good one. Were you surprised that they just went in the same with both quite so rigidly as well? Um, With the benefit of hindsight, it's 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 easy, uh, you know. We're talking on Monday here, um, the day after the race. It's, it's easy to criticise and say, guys, you were just too conservative. Um, going into it, and at the time, at the time that the first round of pit stops took place, I thought to myself, well, um, yeah, this might be, this might go, this might hang together. It might be a good strategy. Unfortunately, it started to become clear, like these these medium tires are not going to drop off. I know. I know they keep telling the drivers, yeah. don't worry, they're going to drop off. But I, I think as much as anything, they were just trying to mollify mm. Lewis Hamilton um, because there was this, this stark realisation that no, no, it's not happening. Um, and I did think there was a brief moment when Alonso's car broke down right at the, towards the end of the race. Um, there was a brief virtual safety car. Now, what during that virtual safety car, Russell came round and finished his lap. So there was an option there to pit Russell under the virtual safety car and get soft tyres on the car course they eventually did that with like two laps to go 
Now, had they done that during the VSC, um, he could have had a shot at, uh, well, I mean, I forget what the gap was, but, you know, it would have given him a shot at catching Perez if you're on these soft tyres, which are, you know, going to be eons quicker. Um, it, it gave him a shot at something, and it would have been a completely free pit stop. I mean, he had like 40 seconds or something on signs. It was a ridiculous gap. Um, so there's no danger for, of losing a position, um, as shown by the fact that they eventually did exactly that with two laps to go. So I think there was a little bit of inertia. Uh, they'll probably look back on it and say, you know, we could have we could have acted we could have reacted a little better there. It was just we were just a little bit too conservative across the board. Um, and as you as you say that you know Verstappen's and Red Bull can make strategy decisions based upon the fact that the World Championship is in the bag. Remember that Mercedes can make championship decisions or tire decisions based on the fact that the championship is gone. You know, they've got nothing to race for other than simply winning a race. Mm. And with the cost cap in place, you could also add, you could also argue that they don't want second in the constructors' championship because if they get second, if they beat Ferrari, they're going to get less wind tunnel time next year, and they've probably already got one eye on the fact that Red Bull are going to have sixty three percent next year. You know. Um, and they're thinking, oh, third place will do us nicely. Thank you very much. You know, so all they want, all they want out of it is a race win. Yeah, I think, and I think I do wonder how much of its own pressure that race wing is bringing because there is this idea they haven't not won a race in a season for a decade now. Lewis has never not won at least one race in his entire career. I do wonder whether at times like this, when it, it seems like even going into the race, they're going to be competitive. You know, we've had competitive races from the team where it almost feels like their level of competitiveness has snuck up on them a little bit this season. This was not the case this weekend. I wonder how much pressure that was contributing to the idea that they just need to play a super straight bat and hope that the race is going to come to them based on, on what they expect. Yeah, I mean, in 2019, Hamilton won this race with um, an almost identical strategy, I think it was. He pitted early, put the hard tyre on, and hung on for dear life for the rest of the race. Um, even though it looked like the Ferraris were going to get him in DRS, they never did. Um and it is, as I recall, I remember, I remember writing um, strategy analysis on the Friday of that weekend and said, there is whoever, you know, one of these front runners, I didn't know who it was going to be. There is, a, there is a strategy here that says, put the hard tyre on and run it to the end. Um, but, of course, I had written that report and obviously the, all the engineers had the data to hand based on what had happened in FP2 in 2019. Now, what we didn't have this year yes. was that data this weekend because we had the Pirelli tyre test. So... Could it be the case, and I don't know the answer, that Mercedes were conservative on their options because they just could not trust that they could get to the end on a one-stopper using the, the strategy that Red Bull employed? They couldn't trust that if they started on that new, on, on the used uh, soft tyre, switched to a new medium, they couldn't say for certain that it would work. So they thought, okay, let's, let's take a bet on that. That strategy will not work. They will have to two-stop. Because if they had... If that, had tri- if, that, if, that, if that statement had proven correct, Mercedes would have come out of this smelling like roses. And maybe they wouldn't have won. Maybe Verstappen still would have got them. But it would have been a you know, final couple of laps where Verstappen would have had to catch Hamilton and pass him on the racetrack. And we've said passing on the racetrack is really hard. Yes. That practice question is an interesting one, I think, because the only practices we had were P1 and P3. And P1 was a little bit disrupted. And several drivers were reserve drivers, including one at Mercedes who fielded Nick DeVries. And the first sessions of the day, as you'll know, were hotter. The track conditions were warmer in a way that they weren't for the race. And I can't help but wonder whether that, of course, makes the hard look more favourable when you're considering your race strategy. 
particularly given, and I sort of like this element of the race that panned out as well, Nick Latifi was the first one to try the hard for Williams way back in the pack. And that was sort of, you know, he set some some personal best sectors and then Mercedes went in and then everyone else just sort of seemed to assume that if Mercedes saw it, well, then it must be all right and everyone went in on the hard anyway, or a lot of the midfield anyway, not everyone, because Daniel Ricciardo was a notable exception, but... There just seemed to be a lot of uncertainty, sort of thinking on your feet, but not necessarily being reactive in the right way, I thought. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the, it is, I guess, if you're, if you're a strategy, you know, nerd, as I think we, we are, <laughs> um, there is much to be said for being able to sit down with the data and come up with plausible explanations and plausible strategies in advance. Um, but from, from a populist point of view there's a lot to be said for having to be for it for, to be a shot in the dark and be, be saying we're, we're going to call the strategy on the fly because we're just not sure quite how these tires will react and as it turns out this lull in track temperature that we saw meant that those hard tires were not getting into the range that they thought um and we mentioned I mean, we've obviously covered the fact that red bull and and mercedes you know were they making strategy calls based on the idea that they had nothing really to race for other than the win well, if anybody was making strategy calls on the basis that I've got nothing to race for, it would be Daniel Ricciardo and McLaren. <laughs> um, so, you know, lo and behold, um, you know, they turned into the stars of the race because it was just like, bugger it. Let's just stick the softs on and hope for the best. Um, and uh, yeah, it turned, turned out great. You know, it's, uh, I, I, well, you know, good on him. It's about, about time he had a bit of good luck. He's had a terrible season. And uh, we all know how good Daniel Ricciardo can be because we saw him smash Vettel when they were teammates at Red Bull. So, uh yeah, it's uh, it was a, a pleasant surprise to see someone else do something unorthodox and have the race come to them. Yes, I thought, and I think that's a great way to describe it as well, the idea that he had nothing to lose, not only maybe for his own personal circumstances this season, but the fact that that was a premeditated idea by McLaren based on if either of their drivers was at the back of the pack and couldn't be undercut, which so by definition meant you were going to lose nothing, ran really long, 44 laps on that medium, so right up to pretty much the maximum Pirelli forecast, showed pretty good tyre life, something that I, I think a lot of teams were kind of slow to realise or unwilling maybe even to realise that that medium tyre seemed to have more to go I think back to Mercedes as well where George Russell seemed adamant there was more life in the tyre but the, the team didn't seem willing uh, and then that soft tyre run at the end I mean yes I, I, I thought this was interesting as well I don't know if your perspective on this but I mean great race by Ricardo at the end but also did punt off Yuki Tsunoda got a 10 second penalty but that seems very much in the background of discussions about how good that last stint was yeah absolutely I mean that, that stint was so good that he was able to punt Tsunoda into yeah. the hedge get a 10-second penalty and not lose seventh place. He was still seventh after the penalty <laughs> was applied. I actually, w- I was looking at the final standings as we as I was going through the field, because obviously part of my job is, okay, I need to get all the stats together for every driver, shove it all out before the podium's happening. So because we're going to have graphics for post-race and, you know, interviews with the drivers, you know, it's interesting talking points. And I went through it and I was looking at Ricardo in seventh and I was thinking... Okay, so where is he after the penalty? Yeah, like it hasn't, it hasn't, he hasn't shuffled. What is he? Because I was adding ten seconds to it in my head. I was like, okay, so where does he end? And then, then I realised, no, wait, he's still seven. <laughs> he hasn't moved. He, he actually got. I didn't. Re- I was so preoccupied with other stuff that I didn't realise he'd done so well that he actually got these ten seconds. Um, on, uh, for those of you who subscribe to Forex, um, they do a thing in there where they average out the ten f- fastest laps for each driver in the race. Well, Daniel Ricciardo was the fifth fastest driver, even in a car which, you know, we all know that he's not au fait with. He's just not getting on with that car. But yet he was the fifth fastest guy overall in the race when it comes to the average 10 best laps for each driver. 
then it does make you wonder, bearing in mind the Mercedes started on that same compound of tyre, you know, what might have been if Mercedes had been a little bit more thinking outside the box? What if they had done 44 laps on that medium tyre and switched to the soft? Then they could have been really in business uh, because Ricardo just tore through the field. Um, so, yeah, again, and uh, Ricardo's, Ricardo's race is a great example of the race we should have had at the front. <laughs> but unfortunately, it was just that little bit too conservative. And again, you know, sometimes you, you have these races where you have no data in advance and you end up with a real bun fight. And it's like, OK, some people make mistakes on strategy, blah, blah, blah. This was an example of the other way where it was like, uh, we're going to take the conservative option. And it uh, turns out, it, you know, the other guys, the tires are not going to wear out. Yeah. So win some, lose some. But uh, but good on Ricardo for having a good day because he needed one. Yes, I think so. It's always good to look back on a race and see that there was actually a really quick strategy in there, quicker than the other ones that, that were deciding the lead and, and think that there was something in that race that's still to be discovered. Maybe it gets discovered next year if we have similar setup in tyres or, or what have you. Finally, I do want to talk about Ferrari, of course. You probably didn't see him on the TV very much. You probably didn't think about them much after the race. Few people will have because they were absolutely anonymous. One minute behind Max Verstappen, about 40, 30-odd seconds, 40-odd seconds behind Russell before Russell made that last pit stop and about the same ahead of the midfield as well. Really had their own little patch marked out and not much happened in it. Can that all be put down to, again, this, to start where, to finish where we started, I suppose, the altitude effect of this track? Because even by Ferrari's standards of its low races this year, which admittedly hasn't had too many, but this was very low. Yes, it was. I mean, it was certainly, um, obviously, Ferrari have had some nightmares on race day this year, but uh, it's usually be caused by reliability or bad luck. This was just straight up uncompetitive, easily the worst that they've been all year. And, um, I mean, it was still better than last year. Science was 58 seconds behind the winner this year. Last year, um, Leclerc, who was the first Ferrari across the line, was a minute 21 behind the lead. That's you progress. Could, you could label that as progress. <laughs> um, but relative to what we've seen through the rest of the year, it was a very, very anonymous showing by Ferrari. And I think, um, again, I would refer you to uh, the Mark Hughes article for Motorsport Magazine. Uh, he brings up the point that the, there's a smaller turbo on the Ferrari than there is on the other cars, which um, means that uh, in th- in thin air, the turbo has to spool up a lot faster to maintain the same boost. Now, that's fine as long as the turbo can handle that kind of RPM, um, uh, which Ferrari obviously have a limit. So therefore, they are more compromised at altitude than are the other teams because of the power unit. Now, that's one way of looking at it. But the thing is, that's somewhat refuted by the fact that Valtteri Bottas qualified sixth on the grid in between them. Yeah. And he had the same power unit. So you can only use that example, you can only use that excuse to an extent. Um, but we also saw it in Austria. You know, uh, Science had that massive engine failure and then it, you know, the car started rolling down the hill and everything. Um, and that was caused, I, 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 once again, I would refer you to Mark Hughes <laughs> on this. I don't want to suggest this is my information. Mark Hughes, tremendous journalist. Uh, brought up the fact that in Austria that failure was caused by a, a, basically an overspeed on the turbo, which caused the whole thing to let go. Um, and, and, and Austria is the uh, is another race. Not it's not at high altitude, but it is at relative altitude. It's it's certainly not at sea level. Um, so there are reasons for Ferrari's lack of of uh, competitiveness, and and also you know we should say Valtteri Bottas finished tenth in the race with that Ferrari powered Alfa Romeo. They were disappointed with that result. They felt like there was more on the table for Alfa Romeo in this race. Perhaps they had the same thing with, you know, we've got to keep keep an eye on not 
uh, you know, letting another Ferrari power unit go bang. But yeah, I think, unfortunately for Ferrari, the next race is at al- relative altitude as well, because Interlagos is the second highest altitude race of the year. Yeah. <laughs> so perhaps there'll be more woe and despair for Ferrari followers worldwide in Interlagos. And, uh, and Checo Perez will be licking his lips because he'll be thinking second in the championship is going to be mine. Yes. It will be interesting to see, won't it? Yes, two altitude races in a row. Can't imagine Ferrari's looking forward too much to this one. Not the race, perhaps, uh, we wanted or expected in Mexico, but it was an interesting one nonetheless. And maybe, just maybe, Mercedes will get another crack at Interlagos. Who's to know? It's one of those things you only feels like you can see when you get there. I think that there is a case to be made, Michael, that Strategy Report this week on Mexico City will be the most interesting podcast about this race because precious little actually happened on the track. <laughs> but once we dive into the numbers... You know, a much more interesting and nuanced race is uncovered upon us. Um, and I would say, I, I would say, t- discussing the strategy for this race is actually more interesting than watching it um, <laughs> because it was definitely you know, when we when, when we dive into the reasons why decisions were made, it is actually far more interesting than than just watching them go round and round and thinking nothing's happening. Yes, it's podcasts often about the potentially interesting races we never get. Yes. so that's I think that's part of it. It's definitely part Mexico twenty twenty. It's one of the best races that we nearly had. <laughs> Sure, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast. Pleasure. I'll speak to you again soon. It's debatable whether Mercedes would have had the pace to beat Red Bull Racing on the same strategy or with track position. That's some form of progress at least, considering where the team started this season. But after being too conservative and too inflexible, Mercedes will be disappointed simply to not know how much it left on the table this weekend. Thanks very much to Sean Kelly for joining me. The Strategy Report is powered by LeaveCal. Keep track of employee leave and make resource planning easy. Search LeaveCal in the Zero App Store. You can subscribe to The Strategy Report wherever you get your favourite podcasts and don't forget to leave us a rating and a review to help spread the word. You can also find us on social media. The Strategy Report is a beer mogul podcast. Special thanks to Ben Loke from Bloke Designs for the show artwork and our theme music is by Simon Hosford. My name's Michael Aminato and I'll be back in a couple of weeks to wrap up the Sao Paulo Grand Prix.